Listen closely to the following audio clip. At first, it sounds like nothing but static and labored breathing. But listen again, and this time, listen really closely. This audio is taken from a 911 call placed on November 10th, 2018. And yes, it's difficult to make out what exactly the man is saying, or if he's even saying anything at all. To some, it sounds like he's mumbling, she's cold. Others hear something far more incriminating. But the question is, what would a jury hear? This week on Killer Cases. Amy was quite unhappy and was actually thinking about leaving Todd. One guy specifically said, you guys take plenty of help with you when you go arrest him. I started watching the first day and I was hooked and could not believe that this man was being tried for this. He, he couldn't have killed her. He said, I have worked for this farm since I was 11 and I will not give it up. And I said at that time, he is going to kill you. I've heard that audio a dozen times and I'm still unable to really hear exactly what it says. For Vault Studios and the Law and Crime Network, I'm Brian Ross. This is Killer Cases, the podcast. On November 10th, 2010, an Iowa farmer called 911 while racing to the hospital. His injured wife, Amy, was in the back of his pickup truck. Amy, Amy. Amy. She was bleeding heavily, lying in the lap of their teenage son, Tristan. Asked what happened, the man says Amy fell on a corn rake. Okay, sir, what what happened that she's not conscious or breathing? What? She, she fell on a fork. I had to put a damn fork on her. It was an old fork sitting somewhere, and then she was halfway out of the barn. She pulled the pitching out of her. What is your name, sir? Todd Mullis. Todd Bullis, his wife Amy, and their three children lived and worked on a farm in Delaware County, Iowa. It was their life until that chilly November day. It was reported as a farm accident and that it was reported that um, Amy had allegedly had fallen onto, this corn, the, in, onto a corn rake. It would, it would look kind of like a, a yard rake, only that it had four tines, and the tines are much longer, like eight to ten inches. Can you pull over? I can. Okay, how about you pull over? While Todd was on his way to the hospital, the 911 operator told him to pull over on the side of the road to try to perform CPR. Sir, do you feel comfortable uh, doing CPR? I can try. I'll try anything. Okay. Pump the truck hard and fast at least twice per second, two inches deep. Twice per second. One, two. One, two. Now. 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 Todd's efforts to resuscitate his wife did not work. 
38-year-old Amy Mullis was soon pronounced dead at the hospital in nearby Manchester, Iowa, in the same emergency room where she had once worked as a nurse. Child was covered in blood. Delaware County Attorney John Bernal recalls hearing about what happened. Todd racing to the hospital, his son Tristan holding Amy in the back of the truck. Uh, I think obviously traumatized from what he had come upon and the fact that uh, his mother was now placed on his lap, bleeding to death. She's laying on my son's lap. Is she, is she flat? The whole trauma of just trying to hold her, comfort her while they raced toward the hospital and any help they could get. Farmers are constantly reminded of the potential for accidents on the farm. The very nature of the work presents potential safety hazards. Accidents involving tractors, and these can overturn, falling into grain bins, getting suffocated. Eric Hogstrom, a reporter from the Telegraph Herald newspaper in Dubuque, is used to covering farm accidents. In this area, they're, they're very common. But almost immediately, doctors at the hospital where Amy Mullis died began to raise questions about whether her injuries were really consistent with an accident. Sheriff John LeClaire says his office quickly began asking the same questions. We were going, this could be an accident, but this could be a homicide. We knew it was something unusual. We needed to find out as much information as we could as soon as possible. The definitive word came from grisly photos of Amy's back taken at the medical examiner's autopsy, attended by the lead investigator on the case, Deputy Travis Hemeseth. Well, there was actually six puncture wounds uh, in Amy's back, and it was reported that she had fallen onto a corn rake, which is a four-tine rake. The likelihood of this person falling on a fork and falling on it twice with sufficient force to puncture their body would be uh, totally unlikely. Now it was officially a homicide investigation. The corn rake made it almost a quintessential rural Iowa murder. And from the start, Investigators had their eyes trained on Amy's husband, Todd Mullis. So at that point, uh, that the investigation primarily was looking at Todd as uh, a, a, more of a person of interest than an, an actual suspect. But Todd Mullis said he was in a barn about 100 yards away from the shed in the moments before Amy's body was discovered. And he said his son Tristan was right there with him. Tristan told the same story. The, the son said that dad was always within his eyesight. He never lost sight of him. So had someone sneaked onto the farm and killed Amy? Unfortunately, there were some uh, indiscretions uh, by Amy that would lead investigators to at least think about some other individuals. Amy had had an affair about five years previously. That had broken off. But in 2018, uh, she had begun another affair with um, a fellow who uh, was a farm manager. Was it possible that one of these men was Amy's killer? Potentially, yes. Life on a farm can be harsh, unforgiving. A lot of farmers work very hard for what they have. 
Uh, and I, when I say hard, I mean very hard. Todd and Amy Mullis were no strangers to hard work, in some ways resembling the stoic pair of Iowa farmers in the famed Grant Wood painting American Gothic, pitchfork and all. Just the stoicism, the upright, standing, calm, level stare. That painting isn't actually that far from the truth. For those not familiar, it's not exactly a warm, fuzzy picture of life on a farm. It's an unsmiling portrait of two Iowa farmers, gruff and long-faced, and the truth about Todd and Amy's marriage behind the smiles in their family photos was not all warm and fuzzy either. She had felt trapped in the marriage, that she felt almost like a slave in the house. She was very unhappy. According to Delaware County Prosecutor John Bernot, Todd rarely led his wife out of his sight. There was evidence that he was constantly trying to keep tabs on her, borderline stalking type behavior. Uh, and maybe not even borderline. Uh, he was keeping very close tabs on her. What we needed to do, obviously, was talk to Todd, find out what his story was, what, what had happened that day, see what he could tell us, uh, what details he could provide as to what happened to Amy and, and why. Todd Bullis was brought in for questioning, led by John Turbot, an agent with the State Police Division of Criminal Investigation. The DCI. Describe you and Amy's relationship, Tim Todd. How would you describe it after that, let's say, the last five years? How would you describe your marriage to me? Pretty tight, actually. Asked to describe his marriage, Todd tells Agent Turbot he and Amy were pretty tight over the past five years, saying communication was great, that they were together all the time. Yeah, communication was great. Yeah, initially he said that uh, they have their ups and downs like any other marriage, but he indicated things were fine. But investigators had already learned that was not true, that there was an ongoing affair with a farm manager by the name of Jerry Frazier. He happened to be a guy who uh, came around and made her feel happy. Amy's phone records revealed troubling texts sent to a friend as Todd grew suspicious of Jerry. Some reading, quote, Can you talk? I'm in trouble. Been the longest, crappiest week of my life. Tried to talk a little with Todd last night, and that didn't go so well. Additional text read, quote, Part of me says, buck up and make it work. And the other says, why stay unhappy for the rest of my life? Even if Jerry doesn't leave, I'm strong. I can manage on my own. Amy was was quite unhappy and was actually thinking about leaving Todd. And it wasn't just talk. Investigators learned Amy was actually making preparations to file for divorce and move out. She would have been entitled to a very substantial amount of money had she left him and divorced him. For County Attorney John Bernot, this became the theory of the case, a motive of jealousy and greed. Him having, we believe, learned that she was... Uh, putting some furniture away, probably thought, she. this is it. If I don't do something, I'm going to lose half the farm, half of what I've worked so hard for. So the jealousy and the greed just kind of combined. But first, investigators had to rule out Amy's lover, Jerry Frazier, as a suspect. According to Deputy Travis Hemeseth, a light dusting of snow on the ground on the morning of Amy's death Helped. I made note to actually walk around the building to look for any other foot tracks or anything else indicating 
uh, of anybody else that would have came around the building or into the building. I did not locate anything around. And then investigators pulled cell phone tower records for Jerry Frazier. And he actually uh, had a, an alibi. He was out of town that day, actually far from town. With no other suspects, Agent Turbot was left hoping to get information, perhaps even a confession from Todd Bullis. Okay, we've completed our investigation at this point, and the case base clearly shows that you're responsible for, for Amy's death at this point. The agent tells Todd the investigation has shown that he is responsible for Amy's death. Todd responds by asking how he could be responsible. I'm responsible. He was pretty much sticking to his original story that she must have fallen on a rake. So Turbot begins working on Todd's emotions, his pride in his farm, and in his family. You have his farm, and I know that all that's there, and you're trying to be a good dad in the midst of Amy. Investigators knew Todd didn't think Amy was pulling her weight around the farm because of text messages sent from Todd's phone to a friend saying, Amy hasn't done any farm chores, maybe does half housework. Turbot also brings up Jerry Frazier, the man with whom Amy was having an affair. But then they have this again in 2018. You say, oh man, not again, not again. Jerry, again. And you have suspicions, and you're right to have suspicions. But during the interrogation, Mullis claims he's been unaware of anything going on with his wife since the first affair five years earlier. The audio is difficult to make out, but Agent Turbot doesn't accept Todd's claims that he didn't know about an affair with Jerry Frazier, saying he understands why Todd would have been upset by it. After two hours of direct accusations, Todd sticks to his story that he was not in the shed where his wife's body was found and that he did not stab his wife with a corn rake. You want to get me to come back with somebody? Yeah, that's all that I'm up to. But investigators weren't sold. I think all along we had a pretty good feeling it was this guy. Nonetheless, the day would end with Todd Mullis back on his farm. Delaware County is primarily a rural county. About 24 miles by 24 miles. The population is just under 18,000 people. It's a very family-friendly place. Delaware County, Iowa, is a place where neighbors know each other, and they know each other's business, including that of Todd and Amy Mullis. She was um, a vivacious person. She loved helping out on the farm. Uh, he was a, a well-known farmer in the area. 
I guess uh, known as a hard worker, successful farm. But some neighbors told investigators Todd had a cruel streak. From people that talked to me, Todd was a somewhat scary individual. Um, There were all kinds of stories surrounding things that were done to animals on the farm, uh, things that were done to animals in front of the children. But with Todd Mullis back on the farm after the interrogation, investigators still lacked evidence. Obviously, we have to have all of our evidence collected in, in uh, this investigation before we, before we charge. Todd's version of events had not satisfied the investigators' suspicions. Not once did Todd say he didn't do it. It, it was very difficult to buy that story that it was just automatically, this, oh, this is just an accident and get over it. But Todd still had what seemed an airtight alibi for that day from his teenage son, Tristan. A major obstacle for the investigation if you ask county prosecutor John Bernot. The biggest obstacle or weakest point we felt was the child. Tristan told deputies that his father Todd was in a separate barn, never out of his sight before his mother was found in the shed 100 yards away with a corn rake in her back. The child was always considered sort of a, uh, a dad's boy and uh, really had a strong bond with his father. And while this whole investigation went on, the children were with dad. And our concern was that dad would essentially uh, coach the child in a way that would help him. Boy, can you, can you believe mom fell on that rake? Or, you know, do you remember we worked together all day that day? You and I were always within sight of each other. During the interrogation, Agent Turbot had even tried to bluff, telling Todd that Tristan had changed his story. Who knows? Who knows? You guys weren't together that morning. There was, there was time when, when we were tripping. We're not together that morning. I know that now. I do. I do. Todd, that's done. It's done, Todd. But the bluff didn't work. And the farm surveillance cameras, which might have shown Todd's movements in the farmyard, were, strangely, shut down during the pivotal time frame. There was a specific time frame that actually both cameras, uh, they weren't recording. Uh, then they picked up after the incident. Investigators soon carried out a series of search warrants on the Mullis farm. Well, all the, all the electronic devices from the residence um, were seized. Uh, computers, laptops, iPads, phones. And we ended up getting uh, Google searches back uh, from uh, Todd's iPad. Google searches for um, topics like uh, what did the Aztecs do with cheating spouses and placement of the organs in the body. 16 facts about cheating women. Once a cheater, always a cheater. Did ancient cultures kill adulterers? Thrill of the kill, killing unfaithful women. Punishment is 18 months for killing cheating wife. The the content of those Google searches were a key fact to our investigation. Investigators now had enough evidence to go and make an arrest. I was receiving phone calls from people that knew the family and urging me to use caution when you go arrest Todd. One guy specifically said, you guys take plenty of help with you when you go arrest him. They found Todd in one of the farm's hog barns. I'd asked him to step out to, outside to speak with me, and when, and when he had, I had told him I had an arrest warrant for, uh, for his arrest, and I was placing him under arrest for murder in the first degree. State your name, please. Todd Michael Moles. In September of 2019, About seven months after his arrest, Todd Mullis would go on trial 
for the murder of his wife. By the authority of the state of Iowa, accused Todd Mullis of murder first degree. Opening statements have begun in an odd but chilling new case out of Iowa. Todd Mullis. A national audience was watching live as this family tragedy played out in court. This is a case that had torn two large families, you know, into opposing sides. One side of the gallery was Todd Mullis's family. The other side of the gallery was Amy Mullis's family. Uh, you, could, you could sense the animosity between both sides. Also following the case closely were hundreds of members of a Facebook group called Todd Mullis is Innocent. You know, started watching the first day and I was hooked. Led by New Yorker Tracy DeRitter. I will admit I had a little crush at the beginning. Him knowing that people care, number one, and believe that he's innocent is huge for him. Assistant Attorney General Maureen Hughes had just moved to Iowa and this was her first jury trial in the state. She, she wasn't nervous at all. She seemed capable and assured. We would love for you to get to meet Amy, but you won't. Instead, you will share a courtroom with her killer. And you're going to hear about how Amy was fearful of the defendant, how she told her friends and family members that she was planning on leaving him, but that she was afraid that if he found out she was having an affair, he would kill her. But prosecutors were worried that Todd Mullis would hardly come across like a killer to the jury. He had lost a lot of weight and looked far better than I had ever seen him uh, uh, in the community. So I did have concerns about what the jury might think of him as he sat there uh, at council table during the trial. Good morning, folks. In his opening statement, Mullis's lawyer, Gerard Furehelm, was ready to play the sympathy card, portraying Mullis as a dedicated father and husband. But behind his back, Amy was having a significant sexual affair. And the defense lawyer also had come prepared with a surprise, completely abandoning the contention that Amy's death was due to an accident with a corn rake. Amy Mullis was viciously and deliberately murdered. The issue that you will have to decide in this case is really not who did it, but whether Mr. Mullis did. Todd's claims that his wife accidentally fell on the corn rake were out the window. Folks, Ty Mullis' statements about Amy falling on a fork and dying accidentally. She fell on a fork! I absolutely got a damn fork on her! Was a honest, legitimate, on-the-spot explanation or an attempt to explain what happened to her. It was wrong. She was murdered. Horribly. Among the first day's witnesses was the sheriff's deputy who retrieved the corn rake from the Mullah's shed. He dramatically removed the rake from an evidence bag, its wooden handle broken. Now, deputy, based on your experience and years in law enforcement, would a person be able to inflict, inflict death or serious injury on another person with that corn rake if they chose to do so? Yes, they would. The prosecution's case required proving that Amy was having an affair and that she was preparing to leave Todd with the children and take half the farm. It's not like losing a business. It's losing your livelihood. It's losing your, your family's place in the world. On the stand, friends of Amy's described a real-life soap opera. Amy was all upset, and she was crying that if her husband, Todd, would find out, 
that he would kill her. He said, I have worked for this farm since I was 11 and I will not give it up. And I said at that time, he is going to kill you. And why did you say that? Because Todd is just a, the person you don't mess with. State your name and spell it for the record, please. Then the man with whom Amy was having an affair was called to the stand. Jerry Frazier. The prosecution quickly sought to show Frazier was nowhere near the Mullis farm the morning of her death and could not have been the killer. Did you at any point go to the Mullis farm? No. Jerry, on the day of Amy's death, did you communicate with her that morning? Yes. Jerry Frazier testified that he emailed Amy to tell her he was sick at home, 45 miles away. He wrote, morning, slept horrible. Amy, from that same account, then responded to you, and what did she write? Says, well, that sucks. Wish I could be there to take care of you. I'm a pretty good nurse. I don't like to see you sick. And in fact, you talked to the police um, shortly after Amy's death. Yes. And you indicated to them that you believe the last time you saw her, that you did have some type of sexual relations. It wasn't, yeah. It was not sex. It was oral. So you, you do recall that there was some type of there oral sex? There would have been sex. some of that, yes. Did you and Amy ever have any conversations about what Todd would do if he found out she was having an affair? One time she did say that if he ever found out, she would disappear. But the most important witness for the prosecution was Todd and Amy's 13-year-old son, Tristan who testified from a remote location. He was his father's alibi and had first told police his father was never out of his sight that morning. And you told them at that time that you were with your dad the whole time? Yes. But while testifying in a few short answers, Tristan changed his story, saying he had left his dad alone to get a drink of water. But what you're telling us today and what you told us at the deposition is that there was a period of time that you were not with your dad. Yes. And as you sit here today, do you know how much time you were away from your dad in that hour and a half in the hog barn? No. It was devastating testimony for the defense. It's from the child's point of view, where was dad? And the child could not say how long dad was out of his sight. Still, given the layout of the farmyard, the question remained, would there have been enough time for Todd Mullis to have sneaked out of the barn, made his way down to the shed 100 yards away, and killed Amy before his son came back? Mullis supporter Tracy DeRitter doesn't think so. It's over a football field's length away from where Amy was found to where they were working in the hog barn. It just would not scientifically been possible for Todd to get there, do whatever happened, get back for Tristan to see him. It's just impossible. You know, I don't know why he, Tristan would change his story. I, I would think it would be hard for anybody that age to testify, especially against their own parent. Tristan, do you want to be here testifying today? No. Is this a very difficult thing for you to talk about? Yes. And you don't want anything bad to happen to your dad? No. On day three of the trial, the only other person who was in the barn that day would be called to testify. Call Todd Mullis. Todd Mullis took the stand in his own defense, and he was eager to tell his story, beginning with an effort to undercut the impact from his son's testimony. Do you have an estimate of how, how many minutes or seconds he would have been out of the main part of the barn getting the drink before he returned? 
is a matter of seconds. Okay. While he was doing that, did you ever leave the barn? No, I did not. By this point, the jury had already seen the interrogation of Mullis, and the agent who interrogated him had testified that he never denied killing Amy. The DCI agent this morning said that, in his opinion, you never denied killing Amy. Do you think you did? Yes, I did. And you did so how? I stated that you want me to confess to something I did not do. God, you know, you won't get me to confess to something I didn't do. In my mind, that's saying I did not do that. Was he giving you much of a chance to explain things? Not at all. I tried several times and he wouldn't give me a chance to say two words. What do you think happened? I mean, I, I just, I just, I don't know. He killed Amy. He killed Amy. And I can understand why. Todd, did, did you ambush your wife Amy in that shed that day and brutally beat her and chop, chop her up with that corn fork? No, I did not. Do you know who did? I have no idea. No other questions. But there would be plenty of questions for Todd Mullis during cross-examination the next day. Okay, Mr. Mullis, do you want to come back up and retake the stand for cross-examination, please? When Todd Mullis retook the stand on day four of the trial, it quickly became clear he was in for a long day and those internet searches found on his iPad were going to be a major theme. There's a search for characteristics of cheating women. Did you do that search? No. Okay. Do you know who did that search? No. You have no idea? No. Around that same date, there's a search for what did ancient cultures do to infidelity? Did you do that search? No. Again, you, don't, you have no idea who did that search? No. There's a search on here that same date, um, 16 facts about cheating women. Did you do that search? No. All these searches were dated around the time that Todd's wife Amy began her affair with Jerry Frazier. And right after that, killing unfaithful women. Did you do that search? No. And the last one of that bunch is a visited site. Punishment is 18 months for killing cheating wife. Did you do that one? No. Do you know who did it? No. Worse for Todd was what was about to come next from an unlikely source, someone watching the trial live on television. Because this was broadcast around the country, we were getting emails and phone calls from attorneys and citizens and, you know, essentially uh, people who are trying to play private eye or investigator uh, calling and saying, did you see this? Did you see that? A viewer had taken the time to analyze Todd Mullis' 911 call. Delaware County 911, what's the address of your emergency room? Oh, this is Todd. Hello? Where are you at? Well, it, was just ha- it just happened to be a person calling in saying, you really need to listen to that 911 tape because I believe he is saying something under his breath. <laughs> As Todd Bullis is performing CPR on his wife with the cell phone next to him, the tipster said he could hear Todd saying, cheating whore, specifically during this section of the call. (laughs) 
And a few seconds later, the tipster said he could hear Todd mumble, go to hell, cheating whore. (laughs) Investigators had never heard that until the viewer called in the night before the final day of the trial. And depending on the device you were listening on, uh, you could hear it very clearly, we thought. In, In my mind, it clearly said what it said. Armed with this new claim, Prosecutor Maureen Hughes attempted to walk Mullis into a trap. No, John, did you just hear that whisper at the end of that? Yes. And what did you whisper? I couldn't hear it. Okay, I'm going to play it again. Do you whisper cheating whore right there? No. So you don't remember what you whisper? No. Okay, I'm gonna play another clip for you. Just try to listen really closely. I just wanna know if you remember what you said. Right there, do you say go to hell cheating whore? No. So you don't hear that? No. You didn't hear at 6.53, cheating whore? You didn't hear that? I didn't hear that word. And it's right at that, after you hear a ping, you don't hear go to hell, cheating whore? No. I have nothing for the judge. The Facebook group of Mullah supporters was outraged. I think it was a cheap shot by the prosecutor, but I don't believe, you know, I heard cheating whore. Um, I just didn't hear that. That's I didn't hear that. I heard four, and he was breathing heavily. He was giving CPR. I didn't hear what what the prosecution claims. The defense uh, countered that Todd was actually under his breath, mumbling, "So cold, she's so cold." <laughs> I've heard that audio a dozen times, and I'm still unable to really hear exactly what it says. But it didn't matter what anyone watching the trial heard. What mattered was what the jury would hear. Okay, whenever the state is ready for closing argument, Ms. Hughes, you can go ahead. Amy Mullis didn't stand a chance. She was unarmed and unaware that she was about to be ambushed by the very man that took a vow to love and honor her. And Prosecutor Maureen Hughes made the whispers on the 911 tape a centerpiece of her closing argument. And I'm gonna implore you to listen to that 911 call. Don't take my word for it. Don't believe me. Listen to it for yourself. Make your own determination. Why did he kill Amy? Because he didn't want to lose his farm? Because she was cheating? You might not like that Amy was having an affair, but that doesn't mean she deserved to die. Today, this nightmare finally ends. It finally ends for Amy and for her friends and family, for her children, because Amy finally gets the justice she deserves. Today is the day you find the defendant guilty of murder in the first degree. Then the defense presented its closing argument to the jury. 
is it possible that somebody could have went in that shed and been in there and, and Amy surprised him? I know that sounds like a murder mystery, but could it? Whatever happened in there was sudden and violent. Mullis's lawyers scoff at the prosecution's interpretation of the 911 tape. If you listen carefully, he's out of breath. He's, he's, he's doing compressions. He says, she's cold, she's cold. It just boggles the mind that you would be on 911 saying that. If you murdered your wife and you're, you're whispering, cheater, uh, go to hell, you, you're gonna do it on a 911 call? He's panting. Listen, that is a Hail Mary by the state here, folks. Then attorney Gerald Fjordhelm moves on. Common sense. Is that man diabolical enough to not only murder his wife with that thing, but to send his 13-year-old kid to find her? Is, is that guy, did he do that? Does he present that type of horrible horrible evil you saw him you 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 get to judge him the prosecutors expected a quick verdict frankly i think it was a slam dunk but the jury took more than two days to make its judgment i was thinking perhaps it would be a hung jury then we got the word to return to the courthouse and the place filled up again and a worldwide audience watched the live broadcast as the verdict was announced Todd Mullis looking at a big penalty if he's convicted. I thought there's no way that they can find him guilty. I mean, he did great on the stand, um, but I was concerned about that 911 call. This is unquestionably an emotional case for both parties. When the verdict is read, I expect there to be no outbursts, uh, no disruptions of court of any kind. Would the foreperson please hand the verdict to the court attendant? We, the jury, find the defendant, Todd Michael Mullis, guilty of the crime of murder in the first degree, signed by the jury foreperson. Um, the look on his face broke my heart. He was crushed. Um, it, it, it's such an injustice. There were a lot of tears on the side of the courtroom that had Amy Mullis's family. Hugs and tears and a lot of emotion was shown. Todd Mullis' sentencing was delayed because of the COVID-19 pandemic, and he used that time to hire a new lawyer who argued Mullis should get a new trial. He claimed there was misconduct on the part of prosecutors for raising the supposed hidden whispers on the 911 tape. And the, the fact of the matter is that uh, none of those statements were contained on that tape. So in looking at uh, this, Your Honor, uh, the question is, did Ms. Hughes intentionally, recklessly, and repeatedly use prejudicial terminology while she knew or reasonably should have known uh, this phrase was not in the recording that was played? But the judge refused to throw out the guilty verdict and gave Mullis one last chance to speak. This is the only chance you'll get to speak today before I present, uh, before, before I pronounce judgment. Is there anything you would like to say today? I did not do this. Uh, 
this is supposed to be America where you have a, a fair chance of proving your innocence. But you shouldn't have to prove your innocence. Innocent until proven guilty. I feel this is the other way around. And I was a faithful and loving husband, and I never did this. And then the judge handed down the sentence, mandatory in a case of first-degree murder. For the charge of murder in the first degree, you are sentenced to life in prison with no opportunity for parole. Yeah, there's, there's nothing good that came out of this. I mean, there's, it's a tragedy. The children losing essentially both parents, with one dead and the other going to prison. Oh, it's very sad. It's a very, very sad case. I would be fine if we don't have any more homicides, but it's a strange world out there. Anything can happen. Killer Cases, the podcast, is a production of the Law & Crime Network and Vault Studios. You can watch Killer Cases on the A&E Network and the True Crime Network. Refer to your local programming guide for full details. Brian Weiss, John Ford, and Will Johnson are executive producers with Vault Studios. Reed Redman and Will Johnson produced and edited the podcast. Killer Cases, the television series, is written and presented by me, Brian Ross, and produced and directed by Rhonda Schwartz. Executive producers are myself, Brian Ross, and Rhonda Schwartz with Ellsworth Productions, and Rachel Stockman and Dan Abrams with Law & Crime Productions. Also, thanks to producers Sam Kelly and Jennifer Tinter, and editors Danny Hilton and Nick Teodori. Killer Cases is produced in partnership with Cineflex Rights and True Crime Network.